Hello, over there on the other side of the pond. This is Tony Campolo, and the name of the show is From Across the Pond. Usually Shane Claiborne is with me to uh, host this show, but he's out there preaching the gospel somewhere in the world. Uh, He's a graduate of Eastern University. He was one of my students as a sociology major here at Eastern University, just outside of Philadelphia. And today we have a special guest. We have Peter Enns, who is a professor of Bible here in, uh, well, I guess really theology, but mostly Bible here at Eastern University. Uh, Ours is an evangelical, socially progressive school just on the outskirts of the city. Uh, Peter Enns has earned a reputation for Eastern. Uh, As I travel around the world, I constantly meet people like uh, the man I just met in uh, Paris the other day who said, do you know Peter Enns? And I said, you know, I wish I knew him better. I've I had lunch with him once. Uh, he made me pay for the bill, but uh, we did have lunch together, and uh, we had a fun, fun time. And he's a fun guy. If you read his books, they're fun books to read. He not only has profound theological and biblical insights, but he writes with a flair that makes his books exceedingly easy to read, with a lot of humor sprinkled through the books. And uh, so I welcome our guest today, Peter Enns. Peter, thank you for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Tony. You know, we've had lunch more than once. Oh, that's right. I, I You probably just forget because— I'm, I'm old, man. I'm 85, lunch. man. I'm, uh, I'm old. I'm boring, so whatever. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. the way it goes, babe. That's the way it goes. You got a recent yeah. book. What's the name of the yeah. book? My book uh, is How the Bible Actually Works. And how does it work? I don't know. <laughs> if I say that, people are going to buy the book. I can't just say that. Yeah. So, you know, here, here's the thing about the Bible. You know, I love the Bible, and I love it because I just can't wrap my arms around it and control it. I can't put it in categories that I like, that I'm comfortable with, because the Bible does stuff like it, it, it has real ancient stuff in it, and it's got ambiguities in it. It's got diversities and contradictions in it as well. And I think those are properties of the Bible that we should hold on to as telling us something of what the Bible is like. And when we take that seriously, I think we come out with this. Well, well, the Bible really encourages us to go on the path of wisdom rather than just looking to the Bible to give us answers to complex questions we might have today. Well, some of our listeners will be uh, upset when you say there's things like uh, uh, contradictions in the Scripture. Uh, could you elaborate on that? And, and if there are such contradictions, how do we handle them? Sure, yeah. Well, I, I, I do understand that that can be something of maybe a lightning rod, um, but I don't mean that. I mean, these, these are things that people, including, you know, fairly conservative writers and Jews throughout history have just noticed. And contradictions really, actually, that's even the best word for it, in my opinion, because I don't think God contradicts himself or anything like that. But I think what we have in the Bible is people writing living at different times in different places, and as a result, they see things differently. They don't see—they're not always on the same page when they describe what God is like. For, I mean, just—can uh, I give a quick example to that? Sure, might, go ahead. might help. Yeah. So, for example, if you're reading the book of Jonah, right, that great story the book of Jonah, God tells Jonah to preach repentance, basically, to the Ninevites, which is—that's the capital of Assyria, which is like the major— you know, power center of the time. You don't mess with the Assyrians. The Assyrians have been horrible to people they conquer, including the Israelites. 
So, you know, there he tells, tells Jonah to preach repentance, but Jonah doesn't want to. He runs away, you know, he gets swallowed by the fish, all that kind of stuff. But the gist of Jonah seems to be, don't try to define who's an insider, who's an outsider. God will do that, and God even has compassion on your most hated enemies. God doesn't want them undone. God wants them redeemed. In our language, God wants them saved. You just move two books over to the book of Nahum, and there the view of God against the Ninevites is exactly the opposite. There it's not, you know, redeem them and I have compassion for them. There it's, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make their lives miserable. I'm going to kill a bunch of them because of what they've done to the nations around them and what they've done to Israel. So right there in the Old Testament, we have an example of diversity concerning how God thinks about this nation of Assyria, its capital is Nineveh. And the reason why it's different, I mean, this is, this is, not, um, this is not a controversial point among biblical scholars, but the reason why they're different is because they're written at a very different time and place. And the book of Jonah is probably reflecting something of Israel's long experience living in exile, where they came to see that people who were very different from them, maybe God loves them too, not just us. And so they wrote a story to reflect that belief about what God is like. See, to me, that's, a, that's an interesting thing and a beautiful thing to see in the Bible. And that's why the word contradiction doesn't really help, because it's sort of just, it can be the lightning rod. It's more, look at what we have in the Bible. We have people really thinking about what God, what God is, God is, God is, God is like, and expressing that faith and life. And that's personally very encouraging to me, both, you know, on a personal level and a theological level and what I teach and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, well... Uh, there, can you give us a couple of other examples? Sure. Yeah, I mean, for example, in in the Pentateuch, you know, the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of laws in there, right? And those laws have uh, been noticed. Again, this is by Jews, like, long before the modern time. This is not rocket science here. This is not something that's hiding. But you have different views on what God requires, for certain topics. Like for example, in the book of Exodus, um, you can have a male Hebrew slave, and that male Hebrew slave can be let go, if he so wishes, after seven years. A female Hebrew slave is not allowed to go free. She is the property of her master, period. Wow. You move to Deuteronomy, and it's, it's different. It's, it's both Hebrew male and Hebrew female slaves have the right to go free after seven years. Uh-huh. You move to Leviticus, it says that there, you know, you're not supposed to have Hebrew slaves at all because you were slaves in Egypt. Uh-huh. Now, you can have slaves from other people, but not from your own people. So, like, which is it, right? Well, how do you account for those? Reflect those traditions that change in the Bible. How do you account for that uh, differential? I think there, too. I mean, the way I account for probably almost all of these is that they're written at a different time. And I think what people are—what's happening to Israelites in the Old Testament— is becoming more and more acquainted with what God is like. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe God's not that high on slavery as we thought. You know, may, maybe, maybe God is more, you know, um, our word humanitarian. Maybe yeah. God wants us to treat each other better than we have thought at an earlier time. You sort of see a movement in the Bible between not God changing. See, that, that's my point. God doesn't change. 
but I think people's perceptions of what God is about does change. Well, that seems to me... I know, I know it does with me. Yeah. Well, that seems to be uh, obvious in some instances, even for those of us who aren't too acquainted with the sophisticated insights that you have. Uh, for instance, I have a hard time uh, reconciling God as I find God revealed in the book of Joshua as opposed uh, to God as revealed in Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as a matter of fact, as a young person uh, in college, I had real difficulty with that. Are we dealing with the same God, uh, the God who is for wiping out entire groups of Canaanites and uh, as opposed to the God who says, love your enemies, overcome evil with good, uh, turn the other cheek? I, I found that. So even in my elementary understanding of Scripture, I sense that uh, there was a growing sense of who God is as we go through the Scripture and it says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, uh, God who in diverse ways and in diverse manners has in these last days revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And so I, I find Jesus to be the ultimate revelation of God toward which the entire scripture is pointing. And that's why I find the Hebrew Bible useful, not because of everything that it says, but because of everything that it says, it points to Jesus. Yeah, and I think you've just said something that is a very basic and fundamental Christian confession, and I, I agree with that. I mean, we, we could tweak things here and there if we had three hours, but we don't need to do that. I think, you know, the Christian confession is that Jesus shows us what God is like. And there are places where that's going to be in tension with how, let's say, some authors of an earlier biblical period, we call it the Old Testament, how they might have perceived God. You know, when you're living in an ancient world of the Old Testament in, in, in a tribal culture that's of an Iron Age, and everybody around you has gods that kill each other, and, and the way you know that God's on your side is when you wipe out your enemy. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Jesus has things to say about that. And, and by the way, Jesus isn't the first one. Jews had been thinking about that before Jesus came. Uh -huh. But Jesus puts a fine point on it for us. You know, it's, see, I'm trying to avoid, like, the New Testament corrects the Old. I think we here have, though, a very glaring example of how we, if we're going to be responsible Bible readers, we have to struggle with that very thing that you're raising, yeah. that I'm seeing at this junction here between what I'm reading in one book of the Bible and what I'm reading in another. One way of solving that is to say, well, you know what? It, like, like I said elsewhere, God lets his children tell the story from their point of view, from how they see it. And God embraces that, but God doesn't leave things there. We have Jesus, who is the, you know, the full reflection and image of God. What a that, great... That's, where, that's our starting point for what God is like, and we have to deal with the other stuff as we come across it, like the book of Joshua. What a great uh, line you just uh, gave us, and I kind of wrote it down, uh, that God lets his people, if the word his can be referring to God, because... There are those who yeah. would argue that God transcends both masculinity and femininity. But for the well, sake of this program, uh, God lets his people uh, speak for themselves about how they understand God. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, I, I, use, I like to use the word children. God lets God's children tell the story because I think of any parent who has, let's say, a young child who you know, talks at, at show and tell or something. Here's what my daddy does. And they say it in ways that they understand, but they don't understand the ins and outs of what dad does or what mom does at work. 
but they tell it out of love and out of devotion from their own point of view. And what parent doesn't rejoice in the children doing that, even if they get things flat wrong? You know, they just don't understand and they sort of misunderstand, but it all comes from a place of love and devotion. And I think of the Bible, you know, it's an analogy, it's not perfect, but I think of the Bible in that way, that we're seeing here the writings of people of faith who are who, who are understanding God in the only way that they can possibly do it, which is the the language of the culture that they're around. Okay. You, and, and that doesn't change. You, you teach at Eastern University— an evangelical school on the outskirts of Philadelphia, a place where I've been a, associated as a faculty member and uh, an officer for, for many, many years. The About students 200 are, years, Tony, I think. Yeah, the students <laughs> are basically evangelical conservative. How do they react in class to what you say? Well, I think um, a couple of things. One, I think the student body is broader than that. You know, I think that certainly is a large chunk of conservative evangelical. But even the students that I've seen, many of them are looking for language that they can embrace for themselves because they might have questions about how they were raised. That's first thing. Second of all, like, I don't talk this way the first day of class. You know, we, we have like introductory courses where this really doesn't, come up because we're dealing with much more uh, basic things just to get the, you know, the idea of the Bible and the sort of what story the Bible tells to get it out there. And the upper division courses, you know, we just, we just read the Bible together and they come up with the questions on their own. Uh-huh. And that's a fun place to be too. And, and I think what's nice about what I love about Eastern is that the students have the freedom and the space to raise these things without fear of judgment, without being fear of being told they don't have faith and they're wrong. They're just, they're just doing what people have been doing for over 2,000 years, taking mm. the Bible very seriously and reading it. A, a student of, of, uh, who graduated from Eastern University, who is presently at Oxford University, uh, studying over there on the other side of the pond, uh, said to me, you know, the difference between Eastern and other evangelical schools is other evangelical schools tell the students what to think. And at Eastern, we have faculty members who teach the students how to think. And I would imagine that's something you strive to do in your courses. What's the name of the book again? How the Bible Actually Works. How the Bible Actually Works. I've been talking to Peter Enns. He's a professor uh, here at Eastern University in our theology department. Uh, He's been uh, creating a stir around the world with his writings. Uh, He's given the university, a high profile among intellectuals everywhere I go. Uh, But the great thing about his books is that they're easy to read so that a person who is not, uh, you know, seriously into Greek and Hebrew and all of the original languages and all the ordinary guy like me, uh, like I am, I guess I should say, uh, can read his books and say, whoa, this is informative. This is really helpful. So consider getting the book. It's, uh, it's out right now. How long has it been out? It came out in February. Okay, yeah. I, I thought it was relatively new. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm Tony Campolo. I'm here every week at this show, and um, the name of the show is called From Across the Pond. We call it that because we put the show together here in the United States and uh, send it over by satellite to the United Kingdom. But uh, 
uh, we call the show from across the pond because we put it together on the other side of the Atlantic from where you Brits are. Uh, the other thing I wanted to know, want you to know is that we promote a red-letter Christianity. Red-letter Christianity is, in fact, a, a movement that says maybe the word evangelical has outlived its usefulness. Uh, certainly in the United States it's a problem because the word evangelical is now tied up with Donald Trump and with a very, very right-wing political agenda. And a lot of people who hitherto uh, call themselves evangelicals, like myself, uh, don't want to use the label anymore. And so we came up with this new label called Red Letter Christians. Uh, We call ourselves Red Letter Christians. Go to our website, redletterchristians.org. Find out what we're all about. But we take Jesus very, very seriously and we are trying to live out the radical teachings of Jesus. I don't think people uh, realize how radical the teachings of Jesus are. Um, what would you say to people who are listening, uh, who are saying, whoa, I haven't thought about this before? Uh, what can you say that would encourage them to begin to look at the Scriptures from your point of view? Yeah, I, I think it's, first of all, it's okay to... Um have new things, you know, I mean, my life is full of new things hitting me all the time. I think God is there, and, and sometimes we're out of our comfort zones. That happens to me all the time. But, you know, I mean, I have a few books out there, and, and actually, the easiest way is this, pdens.com. I have a website. I have all the books written there. You can find them, and some of them might be interesting, because I write a lot about the Bible. I blog about it, and uh, we also have a podcast uh, called The Bible for Normal People, <laughs> which is just for people who aren't experts. That's and, me. But we bring biblical scholarship and all that sort of stuff to bear, and we have a pretty good time with that podcast. Yeah, well, it sounds good. It sounds good. You have some other books. Uh, uh, is there one called The Bible Tells Me So? Is, is that one of your books? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the last three, I mean, it's sort of good if you want to, if you, if you have nothing to do, read these in order. The Bible <laughs> Tells Me So. That came out in 2014, uh, and then The Sin of Certainty in 2016, and uh, then most recently How the Bible Actually Works in 2019. And they tell a story. They, they sort of hang together, and they're all published by Harper One Publishers. But the story that they tell is, you know, it's okay to let go of the way we think the Bible works and treat the way it actually works as a gift. And we may not always be sure of everything, but our quest in life is not to be certain intellectually, it's to be faithful, and it's to commune with God. And I think the Bible, at the end of the day, that's exactly what it's doing. That's, that's really the gist of that trilogy, so to speak. And So, like, if you've got nothing to do, there you have it, those three books. You can read them pretty quickly. They're not, you know, no footnotes. You can critique this. Um, the Red Letter Christian movement uh, was critiqued by... Christianity Today magazine, which is the big evangelical magazine on the American side of the pond. Uh, And they said, uh, red-letter Christians uh, in general, and Tony Campolo in particular, act like the red letters of the Bible are more important than the black letters of the Bible. My response was, you're right, we, we do. As a matter of fact, Jesus said in many instances in the sixth chapter of Matthew uh, that what he had to say was more important than what Moses had said or what the writers of the uh, Pentateuch had said in other places. Uh, and, and furthermore, we said, in response to that criticism, I don't know that you understand the black letters until you first come to grips with the Jesus who is revealed in the, 
in, in the red letters. I critique that. I'm sure you can see that there are shortcomings in those statements. Well, yeah, I mean, generally, I think it depends on what we mean by red letters, uh, you know, because there are red letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red and the rest of the words in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that Jesus doesn't actually say are in black. And I think for me, that's, I, I get that, but the whole Gospels are written by people and they weave Jesus' words into this larger story. So I think all that has to be taken seriously, which I know you do. But for me, red letter is sort of a shorthand way of saying, at least what I think you're saying, is, listen, you know, we're Christians, and there's a centrality to the gospel for our understanding what God is like and how we read the Bible. And, you know, we're not going to treat the book of Joshua on the same level as, as let's say, the gospel of John. Uh, From my point of view, from my point of view, uh, it, it seems to me that 20th century was really a struggle over orthodoxy. Uh, What is it that we're supposed to believe? Uh, The modernist liberal uh, controversy emerged and the fundamentalists reacted, and there was a fight going on the whole time I was growing up. Uh, I mean, uh, I was born in 1935, uh, so you can imagine all those years I was growing up, there was this argument going on between the fundamentalists and and the so-called modernists as to what it is that we should believe. Uh, I think the 20th century... Uh, has a different twist to it, whereas the 19th century was into orthodoxy. The 21st century seems to be into orthopraxis. What are we supposed to do if we're followers of Jesus? How are we supposed to act? Uh, How seriously do we take the radical uh, requirements of Jesus? Sell what you have, give it to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. Does reading the Sermon on the Mount make you into a pacifist? Can you be an evangelical Christian who takes Jesus seriously and affirm capital punishment? Uh, What are we going to do about the environment? The questions are different. How do we act in the 21st century? And what does the Bible tell us about what we should do and the kind of people we should be? Could you reflect on that differentiation? Sure, and I, I agree with it. I think that this, you know, the generation, again, you know, we're both college professors, so I see this with uh, people who were born, you know, no earlier than the late 1980s, and um, uh, late 1990s, rather. And uh, they're, they're not interested in the doctrinal disputes of the 20th century. They might accept some of them, but they just, they're not interested in living there, I think in part because it doesn't really, see, ironing those things out doesn't change your life. It doesn't change who you are or what you do. It's just another game you can play, an intellectual game to make sure you're right and other people are wrong. I think younger people today are looking for authenticity and a genuine existence that is sort of folded into the spirit that is beyond the intellectual game that I think we sometimes play with something that's very powerful, the gospel. That word authenticity is really the big word that I hear among young people. You're, you're right, I'm an old guy, and my knowledge of the youth culture comes from listening, and I hear them talking about uh, people being authentic, about having an authentic belief system, an authentic theology. Uh, that uh, There's a great scene that I think would make a good sermon where Pilate uh, asked Jesus a very simple question. Uh, are, you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response, it's a great response, do you say this of yourself or did somebody else tell you this? What an interesting question. 
And I think we have to ask that of our students, the things that you say and believe. Do you say this of yourself? Is this an authentic conviction in your own life, or are you simply repeating what other people told you? And I think that Peter Enns has done a good job in challenging our students to work through the scriptures and become authentic Christians. Uh, We're running out of time, strange as it may seem. Uh, We're wrapping up the program. We're going to have to have you on another time, Peter, because you've just begun to stimulate the interest of our listeners, I'm sure. You certainly stimulate my interest every time. I've got all three of those books that you mentioned, incidentally. I've read two of them, and I'm working on the third one now. So thanks for being on the show. And uh, you people on the other side of the pond, remember the name Eastern University. It's a place where you might want to come all the way across the ocean in order to study with Peter Enns and and, and with me, for that matter. Bless you guys sure. on the other side of the pond. And thank you, Peter, for being a guest today on the show. Thanks, Tony. Happy to be back sometime. Blessings. <laughs>